Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today, we're honored to be talking to Carl Erskine. Carl's a former starting pitcher with the Brooklyn Dodgers and Los Angeles Dodgers from 1948 through 1959. He was a pitching mainstay on the Dodger teams that won five National League pennants, peaking with a 1953 season in which he won 20 games and set a World Series record with 14 strikeouts in a single game. He also pitched two no-hitters, as well as winning the World Series in 1955 with the Brooklyn Dodgers. So here's Carl. All right. Thank you. I really appreciate you uh, letting me call you. Well, my pleasure to speak with you, especially we're all on lockdown. <laughs> Any news from the outside is yeah. welcome. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, could could you tell me, um, when you were coming out of high school, we're going back, and World War II was going on, how did you, get in, how did you end up getting involved in professional baseball? Well, I'd been scouted in high school by several teams. The, the Dodgers were prominent in uh, those years of my high school of following the scout named Stanley Fiesel out of Indianapolis, scouted me, and uh, my catcher in high school was also a good prospect. So he followed us uh, playing our uh, high school games. And then when I graduated, um, they sent us, the two of us, to Brooklyn to work out with the Dodgers for a week. So that was the final blow for me. I I didn't care to play with anybody else after that experience. So uh, then I got drafted into the Navy immediately uh, after that uh, in 1945. I mm. went to the Navy for a couple of years, and the war finally ended. Uh, and then I got out, and I signed with Mr. Rickey in 1946. Uh, in fact, I was still in the Navy when he signed me. The season was about over, but I went out and played uh, about a month with uh, Danville, Illinois, which was a three-eye leg in those days. And then the season ended, and uh, the commissioner called me to Cincinnati to his office, he and my dad. He said he was going to declare me a free agent because Mr. Rickey had signed me before I got my discharge from the Navy. And he said uh, they violated my directive, but there was ambulance ambiguity and sort of in my wording, so I'm not going to borrow the Dodgers from re-signing it. And uh, so I was free to sign anybody. 
and the Red Sox uh, offered me a good contract, the Phillies, but I wanted to play for the Dodgers. And so I told Mr. Ricky, uh, yeah, I'm not going to sign with anybody. I'd, I'd like to re-sign with the Dodgers. He'd give me a bonus uh, when he signed me before I got out of the Navy. He gave me $3,500 bonus. Well, there was no bonuses paid in money in those days. Uh, you might get a set of golf clubs or something, but you, you didn't get any money. But he offered me money because the Braves had also tried to sign me in my Navy days. I spent part of them in the Boston Navy Yard and uh, worked out with the Braves, which, believe it or not, were in Boston at that time before Milwaukee and then before Atlanta. But um, I re-signed with the Dodgers. And then I went out to uh, Denville, Illinois, to play the full season. Then I, Mr. Ricky wanted me to go to Cuba and play in the Winter League, which I did. And then I came back, and they moved me to Double A. And halfway through that season, they called me to the Dodgers. So uh, you're asking, in a way, why did you only spend a year and a half in the minors? And, mm-hmm. and my best guess is this. Uh, I did have a good throwing arm. I had a, I had a good live fastball, and uh, I learned a lot in Cuba playing in what was about probably Triple A. You still there? I'm still here, yes sir. Okay, I heard a yep, click. No, nope, I'm here. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't sure. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, Mr. Ricky, uh, I learned this later. Uh, Mr. Ricky, in his uh, aptitude for uh, spotting the talent that he wanted to sign. He always said this, anybody in the ballpark going to a high school game or a semi-pro game, you can always tell who the stars are. And if there's an exceptional player, everybody in the stands knows who it is. So there's no secret to scouting. But when I scout a raw, talented player, I want to know, does he have any aptitude to embellish or refine that rough uh, exterior of just raw talent mm-hmm. or is he always going to be just a raw talent player i want the player who can embellish his skills and can learn and then he can have a as a pitcher he can have such a variety of pitches to pitch to these good hitters in the in the big league well i learned years later that mr ricky i talked to some of the scouts uh, later in my career with with the Dodgers, he said, Mr. Ricky likes you because he could teach you something and you you pick it up quick. And that was true. Uh, I had a good live fastball, but they showed me a, an overhand curveball. I picked it up pretty quick. And then they showed me an off-speed pitch, and I picked it up quick. So what I didn't realize is Mr. Ricky moved me up fast because I learned quickly in the minors and so he frog, he actually leapfrogged 200 pitchers in the Dodgers system and brought me up. After he signed me in 46, I was in the big leagues in 48. That's amazing. So, so that was amazing. And I didn't realize that, uh, that as a young player until years passed. And I heard Mr. Ricky interviewed one time, uh, and he said, what do you like about this boy, Erskine? He's, he's not real big. And Mr. Ricky said, he's big enough. He's he's 5'11", 165, that's big enough. Uh, they said, well, you must must have liked him real well because you paid him a bonus. When he got discharged because of an infraction 
uh, in signing before he got out of the Navy, um, then what, uh, what else do you like about him? And then he said this, and I'd never heard him say this before. This is 50 years after the fact. He said, this boy can learn anything you can teach him. Wow. <laughs> and so that's, that's the reason I'm sure that Mr. Ricky saw the potential. He loved to have a hard-throwing pitcher who could finesse as well. Could take something off the pitch, could change speeds on the curveball, and and I could do all those things as a young pitcher. So he didn't hesitate to move me right up real fast. So that was that was my best guess. Now, you you said you played in Cuba, so I, you played with some of the the the, the great Negro League players. Um, you played right. for Martin De Higo, um, correct? Yeah, right. I played. Uh, in Havana, in a four-team league, uh, in a stadium, we played the same. We played two games a week, and a doubleheader on Sunday. Just a four-team league, and I pitched probably. Gee, I probably pitched 200 innings in that winter league, and I worked on my overhand curveball. And um, boy, by that time I came back, uh, be the spring of '48. And I was throwing that curveball in the inter-squad games in spring training. And the coaches all ran over the bench. Where'd you get that curve? You didn't have that last year. Where'd you get that? I did develop a real good overhand curve. And that got me to the big leagues quick. Do you remember any other players in Cuba that maybe um, people would not know about? Uh, well, Max Manning is one. That I, Max I, Manning I, was one. He was on our team. Uh, and uh, I got to know Max as a... As a friend uh, during about four and a half months in uh, in Havana. Well, our shortstop was Sibio Garcia. Now he was a big, well-built man and had real good power. Uh, he was on Mr. Ricky's list, looking for the black player to break the major league uh, barrier uh, on segregation. And uh, uh, but he was too, he was then he was 36, I think. Mm. Um, we had a catcher on another team there. No, he was he's uh, okay. He he was he brought up by the Giants. Darn it! I you you caused me to reach. I smell, <laughs> I smell wood burning. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Well, you just you you refresh my memory because I I was able to speak to Bob Kendrick, who is the president of the Negro League Museum, about two weeks ago, and he he had told me about all these great players. And, and when I saw that you played in Cuba, I was like, oh, I put two and two together. Um. So no yeah, pressure. Giants catcher. I'll, I'll remember his name in a minute, but he's a big guy from the Giants. Uh, he came up the big leagues, uh, and um, there were there were others who played who came up and maybe went back with other teams. That, but I never played with any of those uh, Cuban uh, players with the Dodgers. Hmm. They were they he came, Barnhill was a pitcher. He came up, but I I don't know I don't remember what club he went with. And uh, the reason he was successful in my, in Nevada because he cheated. <laughs> he, scuffed, he scuffed the ball some way. But uh, when he got the big legs, uh, he didn't stay too long. But, but yeah, there were um, uh, Noble. Noble, you would pronounce it in English, Noble, mm -hmm. was a catcher, big, strong catcher. And uh, he came up and played in the big leagues a season or two with the Giants. And... Uh, uh, those I remember, but uh, well, the, the, I would say my judgment 
tells me that that league in Cuba and Havana was about triple A level. There was, there was really some good Cuban players in that league. Hmm. And uh, and pitching in that league as a young, I was just uh, 19, turning 20 when I went to that that league. And pitching in that at that level, um, Lefty Gomez was our manager, the famous oh, wow. <laughs> Yankee pitcher, uh, and. You know, he was a fun guy to play for, but I was wanting him to teach me some things as a pitcher. But he he wasn't a teacher type. He he just had a lot of fun with life. He was always doing something crazy. <laughs> but um, but I did learn a lot on my own in that league, and um, we had a third place uh, finish out of four teams. And my record was nine and seven. But I pitched a lot of innings, and uh, so I won nine games in a short season uh, in what I would consider AAA baseball. Hmm. So when I came back to spring training in 48, uh, I really benefited by that uh, season in the winter season in Havana. And so I had a good, real good spring training, and I went to Fort Worth, Texas, AA. So I started at Class B, which was two notches from the bottom in those days. And then after the winter season, I jumped all the way to Double A. And halfway through that season, I was called up to the Dodgers. So, yeah, I Mr. Ricky leapfrogged me over about yeah, absolutely. 200 pitchers. Right. So that, that's, that was 1948 is one year after Jackie Robinson uh, debuted. Right. Yes. And you had already... After- you had already been around um, integration in your hometown, correct? Oh, sure. Yeah, it was uh, Indiana was uh, just like the rest of uh, the South. It was uh, black and white, and uh, you knew where to go and where, where not to go. Uh, I did grow up with a youngster named Johnny Wilson, who was a super athlete, and he and I, about ten years old each. In the fourth or fifth grade, we played uh, sports together, basketball, baseball, uh, all the way up through high school. And uh, we both ended up, he, he ended up signing, he was Mr. Basketball in the state of Indiana, uh, and he was a jumper. He he had great leap and timing. Uh, and in a, a day when scoring more than 50 points uh, was unusual, our team used to score 60 points. And Johnny would score 30 of them. Wow. So when when he got out of uh, high school, named uh, Mr. Basketball, State of Indiana, um, he went to college. I was an All-American at uh, Anderson University right here in my hometown. And then he signed with the Globetrotters. He played with them. And then he signed with the American uh, Giants in Chicago in the Negro League. He hmm. played first base. So I grew up with Johnny. He was a close, close friend, and we didn't have any. We we didn't know what segregation meant. I mean, he was my buddy. I'd eat at his house. He'd eat at my house. Uh, we'd go to the movie on Saturday, see a cowboy show, and Johnny couldn't sit on the main floor. Now this is Anderson, Indiana. He couldn't sit on the main floor because blacks were not permitted to sit on the main floor. So. Uh, Johnny and I and a couple of buddies, we sat in the balcony with jo- with Johnny, and so that experience uh, was really—I uh, don't know how you would say it—was 
kind of preparation, really, for uh, meeting and playing with Jackie. And so I didn't have any problem with that. And one day Jackie asked me, he said, why, don't, why didn't this bother you, this black and white thing? Well, I said, I grew up in a mixed neighborhood. I knew a lot of black families were hardworking people. And uh, in those days, that was been in the 1930s and early 40s, uh, everybody was poor after the Depression. So so I didn't have any problem with, uh, I respected a lot of black families. And so I, I told Jackie, you know, this this didn't mean anything to me, and uh, he was amazed with that. And I said, "Well, Jack, you got to re- realize something, Jackie. Everybody with a white skin is not your enemy. There's a lot of people like me. I know you're doing the right thing, and you'll be successful. And there's a lot of people think that, but they don't step out in front and wave the flag." Mm. Well, he said something to me that was unexpected. And very insightful. He said, well, Carl, bigots come in all colors. Now, you don't hear that side of the aisle speak that way much. And hmm. Jackie was intelligent. He was fair-minded. And he was curious of why this didn't seem to bother me. And I said, Johnny, Johnny Wilson's a reason. So... Uh, my disappointment is because of our travel schedule and because of Johnny's uh, uh, experience in sports, we were never together much the next few years. I never got to introduce Johnny to uh, to uh, Jackie Robinson. Hmm. I'm disappointed in that. But, but anyway, um, real quickly, uh, I went to Fort Worth, Texas uh, that spring of 48, and uh, the Dodgers came to Fort Worth to play their affiliate, a double-A affiliate. And I pitched five innings that day. And after the game, Robinson came over to our dugout and asked for me by name. <laughs> Shocked me because I never didn't know Jackie at all. So I shook hands with him, and he said, young man, I hit against you twice today. You're not going to be in this league very long. <laughs> sure enough. I won 15 games at Fort Worth by mid-July, and they called me to the Dodgers. And the first guy to my locker when the team bus got there was Jackie. And he shook my hand again, and he said, I told you, you couldn't miss. So that's how I met Jackie, and and that's how uh, a real good friendship developed, even though we were just teammates. But uh, we did a lot of things off the field together and uh, became good friends. Awesome. Jackie initiated that meeting, and uh, he didn't have to do that. And In fact, he had just had his rookie year and was voted rookie of the year. But almost all players have to have to play the second season, even if they had a real good rookie year. You haven't proven yourself yet. And they, they often said that that sophomore year is a killer for most players. They had one good year, but they couldn't repeat it. So Jackie hadn't played his second season yet, but he he put himself out to talk to some rookie kid that he didn't know. <laughs> Gave me a real boost. I was looking back at some of the players that you faced and pitched against. And it, it, I mean, the, the names are amazing. Uh, Mantle, Yogi Bear, Willie Mays, you know, Ralph Kiner, Stan Musial. You can keep going. Um, when you're out there pitching, 
and you look in and you see, you know, Ralph Kiner. At the time, do you do you do you do you, do you take a big deep breath and say, oh wow, it's, it's Ralph Kiner or it's Dan Musial, and I got to bear down here? I mean, how did you handle moments like that? Well, I don't think it was ever a situation where I feared the batter. I certainly respected the batter, and I, I did face a lot of the best hitters, all the famers. In fact, you mentioned Kiner. Uh, Pittsburgh had a tail-end club, but they had a tough club to pitch against because they had two or three home runners hitters besides Kiner. And Kiner didn't treat me very well. Um, I know he hit one grand slam off of me, and I think late in his career he hit a second one. But um, Musial, when when Stan died a couple years ago, um, a fan called me who was into stats and he said, Carl, you played 12 seasons of big league. Um, who do you think you faced the most times? <laughs> I said, huh. I don't have a clue. Well, he said, I looked it up. You pay, you pitched over 300 innings against the Cardinals, and you faced Stan Musial 164 times. <laughs> wow. I said, really? Well, I had a good record against the Cardinals, but, but Musial always got his hits. And the best thing is to keep the – couple of guys ahead of Musial off the bases and then when he hits a double it doesn't hurt you but <laughs> but you got to bear down on the on the guys ahead of him because guys like Musial they're, they're going to get their hits and he did uh he, he I know his stats because this guy gave them to me he said you pitched uh, 164 times at bat with Musial um in in all those times at bat I only struck him out four times he always got his hat bat on the ball someplace. Wow. He was a tough, really tough out. And he hit me the league average, 331. And uh, yet um, my record against the Cardinals was, was 23 and 8 because I I got the guy. I, the two guys I had a musical was Shandice and Slaughter. Uh, Shandice uh, led off, Slaughter hit second, and then, then Musial. So you're wow. about to get out of the first inning with the Cardinals. <laughs> three Hall of Famers. Three Hall of Famers in a row. But uh, the advice I got from Hugh Casey, an old pitcher with the Dodgers when I joined them, he said, the bear, bear down on these guys ahead of the good hitters because the good hitters are going to hit you just like they hit the rest of the league. So, boy, that was great advice uh, to be sure you keep people off the base ahead of the good hitter. Don't wait to bear down on the good hitter. Bear down on the people in front of him. That was excellent advice to a young pitcher. Mm-hmm. Now, you obviously uh, everybody knows you you pitch two no hitters. Um, one is amazing enough, but two is is you know off the charts. And the first one, or one of them, was against the Giants, who uh, again had really good hitters: Willie Mays, Al Dark, and Dusty Rhodes, and others. Um, when you're in the middle of a no hitter, what is it running through your head? No, you know it's not because you really you pitch it. How do you pitch a no hitter? Uh, one pitch at a time, and a no hitter uh, is a strange animal. There's been a lot of some of the greatest pitchers not pitching no hitter. There's been some kind of unknown to have, so they're kind of a strange animal. But the Dodgers had two things that any pitcher would beg to have: offense and defense. They could do both. So in both my no-hitters, it ironically, the third baseman in the Cub no-hitter was Bobby Morgan. 
he made two plays on swinging bunts that saved the no-hitter. And in a giant no-hitter, Robinson made a play on Willie Mays that I don't think any third baseman in the league could have made. It was a hard-hit ball to his left, but Jackie was so quick, and he picked that up on one hop, turned it into an easy out. So both my no-hitters were saved by the third baseman. (laughs) Wow. Also, another uh, historical note, uh, you could have been the pitcher uh, with the shot heard around the world. Oh, yeah, I've been asked about that a thousand times. (laughs) Well, I was in the bullpen with Ralph Branca, and uh, when the phone rang, Newcomb was on the mound, and he had two men on base uh, and um, a two-run lead. We had a two-run lead, four to two. Well, they they called the bullpen uh, manager, uh, Charlie Dresson, and I know what he must have asked uh, our bullpen coach, uh, Clyde Sukaforth, because... Clyde's answer was, yes, sir, they're, bo- they're both throwing okay. And then he must have asked him, who's got the best stuff? And Sukaforth said, they're both both throwing good, but Erskine's bouncing his curve sometime. And Dresden said, let me have Branca. <laughs> so the second pitch Ralph threw was uh, in the seats for the uh, for the pennant and the whole thing. So I, I tongue-in-cheek say this. People say, Carl, you pitched 12 seasons to make league. What was your best pitch? I said, I think it was a curveball I bounced in the bullpen <laughs> in the polo grounds. <laughs> well, that, that's not really fair, but um, a couple of the writers over time, they said, you know, everybody wonders what they would you'd have done if you brought Erskine in. And he said, I went back and looked and see how did you pitch? What kind of luck did you have against Thompson? And... Uh, so he said, well, you faced him 12 times. So this this was early in my career, 51. Uh, I came up in 48. Uh, they said, uh, they looked you up. Uh, you faced Thompson 12 times, and you, the last three times you faced him, you struck him out. <laughs> I said, you know what? Let me tell you something that comes to mind. We didn't have the laptop in 1951. Right. If we'd had the laptop in 51, Dressen would have seen that I pitched pretty well against Thompson. And he <laughs> might have, that might have been the difference. Well, that's really wild speculation, but um, uh, they were stealing the signs, you know, the, the Giants were. Uh, they had a lot more uh, ingenuity about stealing signs than the Astros did, hitting on a, a garbage can. Yeah. They had a buzzer system rigged up from a, a window in center field with a telescope and a buzzer system to the bullpen for the Giants, which was in right center. And if you stood at the plate, all you had to do was kind of look over the pitcher's right shoulder and you could see the bullpen. So they were stealing signs and using a towel on the, somebody in the bullpen, one of the, one of the catchers, would hold a towel on his lap, a white towel, and if it was a fastball, he didn't move the towel. If it was a breaking pitch, he'd pick it up and rub his hands or his face. And you could see that plane. You didn't have to turn your head or anything. So the Giants have been stealing signs the last half of the season. And um, so that was going on with Thompson. But he never admitted that he took the sign. <laughs> he, uh-huh. always said, he always said, well, uh, yeah, I could have taken it if I'd wanted it. 
but did you take it? I could have if I wanted. He never would say he, he ever took it. But Ralph Branca, he he kind of snuffed out before it ever came to light and before ever through the pitch that he always thought that the Giants were stealing signs somehow, but we didn't figure out how, and so nobody ever, uh, you know, ever charged the, the Giants with stealing signs. Hmm. So they ended up winning the pennant and, and not not winning the series. But that was um, that was going on with Ralph uh, uh, going into pitch to Thompson. Uh, everybody now knows that Thompson probably took the sign and and hit a bad pitch even. He hmm. wouldn't have swung at that pitch if he'd if he'd been on his own. But a fastball was coming. He was cocked to to hit it, and he did, even though it was up and in and kind of a bad pitch to swing at. Uh, with with no baseball right now, obviously, and we're, everybody's looking forward to uh, opening day, whenever that will be. Hopefully, hopefully soon. Can you tell me? I know you you've started an opening day uh, game. What what does that feel like? Is that a, is that just like another game to you, or is it a no, whole different not. feeling? It is not. I'll tell you what it is. It's not spoken. It's not written. But you come out of spring training. And the manager has to decide who's the best pitcher, who's the most ready to start the season because it's going now. Everything's for real. So if you're if you're selected to pitch opening day, you take that as a badge of honor that you have come through spring training, and in the manager's judgment, you're his best pitcher on that day. So it is an honor to pitch opening day, uh, and it's also a, a psychological uh, kind of thing. You're thinking that, you know, of all the pitchers we got, 10 or 11, um, I got to pitch the opening day. So I pitched, in my memory now, I'm thinking, I pitched five opening days. Oh, wow. And um, I got to pitch opening day in Los Angeles, which was at the end of my career, and I was real surprised that Alston picked me to pitch the opener in the Coliseum in 1958 when we moved from Brooklyn. And uh, we played the Giants that day, and uh, about 80,000 in the stands. <laughs> it, was, it was really, really a historical moment. And uh, we had a wild game. Um, we ended up winning 6-5. to five. Uh, I got the win. LeBine bailed me out in the eighth inning, I think. And uh, But I pitched another couple opening days uh, in Brooklyn. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a specific honor to get selected. Now, everybody who knows me, I'm a big Mets fan, and um, I've had an opportunity to talk to some players who who played for Gil Hodges, and you played with Gil Hodges. Um, could you tell me a little bit about him and you know his shot to get into the Hall of Fame? Well, <clears throat> number one, Gil was rated by everybody that knew anything about baseball, probably the top first baseman for a decade in the National League. Now, there are other good first basemen, too, but Hodges was uh, a great defensive player. He had, he had great range around first base, and he does something that not, doesn't get in the stats at all. When Pee Wee Reese, our shortstop and captain, made the Hall of Fame, there was always a tagline, and he also helped Jackie Robinson in his early years, talking about Pee Wee. Mm-hmm. When I write letters to the committee about Gil, 
I say you can see the stats, but what you can't see is how Gil Hodges played right along so Jackie Robinson on the other side, and he kept the peace on the field. Gil was really respected. If there was a fight breaking out around second base with Jackie, he was there right away, broke it up. And he he protected Jackie a lot in those early two or three years. But that's not in a statistic any place. But the fact is, Gil not only put the numbers, I think, are Hall of Fame caliber numbers, but he also contributed uh, in some other ways. Not only did he help uh, Jackie in those early years, Gil was a smart player. Now, we all were surprised when he became a manager because he was, he was such a passive personality. Uh, but he was strong. And Tom Seaver, a, a pitcher I respect a great deal, uh, Tom Seaver talks a lot about Hodges and how tough he really was. But he wasn't loud. Mm-hmm. He got the message across double-fisted, but he didn't have to yell it out. And so... Um, I just uh, I just think Hodges has somehow uh, missed the boat. The story goes that Campanella, our catcher, was on the committee, as was Ted Williams, and Williams was not impressed with uh, having another Dodger make it because he said you're trying to get the whole team in the Hall of Fame. So he kind of nudged uh, Hodges the other way. And Campanella, who was in a wheelchair when he was in on this committee, one of the years he was not able to attend the meeting for the vote. So he sent in a written vote, and they wouldn't accept his vote because it was he was not present. And that was a key uh, vote at that time for Hodges. And uh, so all these strange things have happened. He, He's got voted high votes many times, but not quite enough. But then each time they vote again, he drops down some. Mm-hmm. He's got one more shot. Um, I, I'm not sure when the Veterans Committee meet, but uh, sometime this year, I believe, they meet, and he'll have his last chance uh, to be voted in, and I'm guessing he'll make it. Hopefully. I mean, I, all I hear is, is really great things from anybody who's from you now and from anybody who's played for him. Um, so hopefully that's all well, we can Hodges, do. You know, Hodges is remembered not for his great playing days, which were long. I don't remember exactly how many years, but it's probably 12 or 14 years. I'm not. But he also managed successfully a World Series with the, with your Mets back mm-hmm. in 69. But the Hall of Fame committee standards will not vote you in on player and manager. You can make it as a player or you can make it as a manager. But the two together don't count. I think that's the wrong way to look at it because what do you contribute to the game of baseball? Not just as a player, but if you manage as well. But they don't count it that way. So it didn't help uh, Gil that he had great stats then he managed and died young, but he did get to a World Series with a team that was uh, not expected to win the pennant even. So, right, and he did so many things with that team. I mean, he he utilized the um, the, 
different people at each position and, and subbing people in and out. And that was not really uh, used a lot at that time. So he's, he's, he's done quite a bit. Well, you know, the famous uh, shoe polish ball <laughs> was Hodges was smart. He was a smart manager and a very, uh, a very fair-minded uh, handling of his uh, of his uh, staff of his team. Uh, I never heard a bad mouth uh, by anybody about Hodges, and I played with him for uh, 12 seasons, so uh, I know him uh, really well. And um, he was a strong man, physically and character-wise, but he wasn't a loud mouth, and uh, he was uh, he was all you'd want in a, in a pro player. Nice, Carl. After you after you retired, you went into the insurance business. Yeah, I had an agency because I didn't have to invest any money. I didn't have to travel. <laughs> was it was it easy to transition from sports? No, it was not. No, it took me a couple of years to get a good feel of the business and to try to be a good professional, not just a salesman. Uh, and so there's uh, there's need in uh, the insurance in- industry for good professionals who take care of the client right, no matter what their uh, the policy is or whatever. So I tried. I tried to be a, a real professional. It took me a couple of years to get get the hang of it, and then I had a good, successful uh, agency. But a bank moved to town, invited me to be on the board, and eventually they invited me inside as an officer. And then I went to the chairs, and believe it or not, <laughs> I was president for 11 years. So, so I had three careers after baseball, but. <laughs> Uh, I was very fortunate. My my last question, I think it's an important one too. Could could you tell me about your work with the Special Olympics down in our in my area here? We have something called the Miracle League, um, where they built these almost like miniature ballparks um, where anybody can go to play. You know, whether whatever um, whatever disability you might have, you can go play baseball. And um, I mean, a lot of people look forward to it and helping out. But I know you've done a lot. Um, with the Special Olympics. Uh, could you tell me about that? Yes, I, I'm proud to do it, too. Well, my son Jimmy, my fourth child, when I retired from baseball in 1960, Jimmy was born the next spring, and he was born Down syndrome. Only at that time, it was called Mongolism, a very harsh term, and a, uh, kind of an indicator of how society uh, accepted uh, somebody afflicted with uh, Down syndrome. So it got my wife and I uh, very interested in that population that existed but was not in the mainstream because there was no schools and no services even for uh, any, not just Down syndrome, but other uh, birth defects that uh, come. I asked somebody one day, is it still 3% of births that are affected by uh, some form of uh, disability, and they said, yeah, that, that number is holding pretty true, about 3%. Not all Down syndrome now, but uh, anyway, um, Mrs. Shriver, who was a Kennedy, Kennedy Shriver, mm-hmm. um, it was her brainchild to, as she put it, get these special needs people out of the stands where there's always been spectators and get them on the field and let them participate. Well, that was a wild idea to think people who were, had very little skills, hand-eye coordination, or uh, uh, 
sight, hearing, whatever, to participate in sports didn't make sense. Well, she tried it out in 1968 in Chicago for the first ever Special Olympics event. And from that time on, uh, Special Olympics has grown, grown worldwide. Uh, Mrs. Shriver used to call me and say, Carla, uh, with your Jimmy, uh, Ray's name, uh, we'd like to have you as a, uh, one of the special coaches who could speak to groups explaining how Special Olympics works and why it's an important thing to have. Well, she used to fly me around. I was retired now. It's the early 60s. Uh, she used to fly me around the country, <laughs> and me and other pro athletes, speak about this new idea of Special Olympics. So one time she asked me to come to the Kennedy Center in Washington to speak to a, a group of probably uh, potential donors. And so as I left the house, I took a World Series ring with me, and I took a gold medal that Jimmy had won in swimming. And I didn't know why. I just put it, put my ring on, put the uh, medal in my pocket. So during the few remarks I made at Kennedy Center, I said, I showed the World Series ring. I said, I, I always thought this was the highest thing you could achieve. A World Series ring? Are you kidding? Uh, Jackie Robinson and all of us were like little boys getting this ring. Could anything top that? And then I pulled out this uh, gold medal that Jimmy won in swimming. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Jimmy was never supposed to compete in sports. Can you imagine him winning a 50-meter freestyle in swimming. So which was the greater achievement? You know, we were all pros. We were supposed to win. People like Jimmy were never supposed to compete. So which one do you think is the greatest achievement? <laughs> so Mrs. Shriver said, oh, my goodness, you got to tell that story in Chicago next week, and then we're going to be to St. Louis. And so she used to take me in a private plane, <laughs> fly me around to tell that story. <laughs> so I've been real active, along with my wife, Betty, in Special Olympics for, well, Jimmy is 60 years old, and he started when he was 10. Wow. So he's a 50-year veteran of Special Olympics. And uh, in a simple uh, explanation, I think Special Olympics has told us what we should have all known and should have all been guided by. Special Olympics shows how much you can get out of what you've been given. Those who compete in Special Olympics, uh, as opposed to real Olympics, the real Olympics, the gold medal is all, I mean, the silver medal is almost apologizes that they didn't win the gold. Hmm. In Special Olympics, when six runners are on the end line, there's a first, a second, a third, and a fourth, and a fifth. Who gets the biggest hand? the sixth-place runner because they recognize this, this person is struggling to make it down the line and finally does. And when he hits the end line, he gets a bigger hand than first place because it it's the essence of Special Olympics, getting the most out of what you've been given. That's the yardstick we all should use. Absolutely. I mean, that's a great lesson for anybody. Anyway, uh, Special Olympics has... Um, Proven again that uh, the sports field has lots of life lessons, and Special Olympics really has a lot of them. Wonderful. How's Jimmy doing now? 
Jimmy's doing well. We're on this lockdown, and he can't visit us, but uh, he comes to our patio. We live in a little uh, villa uh, in a retirement village. He comes to our uh, patio door, which is a glass door, and we can't open the door, but we see him and talk to him. He talks to us, and uh, his mother gives him about 15 kisses through the glass. (laughs) But that's how we handle that, and Jimmy's doing very well. Awesome. Well, hopefully this is we're going to be done with this soon, so we all can get back to normal. Absolutely. Well, I don't know if we ever. Well, I don't as know normal, normal can be. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, let's hope uh, you know that the deaths uh, subside and the virus is captured and and we can uh, open up again. And, and this wonderful country was going so well before this happened. And uh, but we all. Uh, we all have to face it alike, and challenges keep coming. Yeah, that's it. Well, Mr. Erskine, I, I appreciate it. I mean, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Um, well, you're very welcome, and I uh, always appreciate the call. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Stay safe. Same for you. Thank you. Thanks, Carl. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you're looking for social media content for your contracting business, painting contractors, carpenters, electricians, any type of contractor, please check us out on Instagram at Amato Media or check us out on LinkedIn. We can definitely help you all out. So have a great day.